I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Ben Weingarten. I'm Will Chamberlain. And I'm Inez Stepman in for Rachel Boulevard because Rachel has had her baby. So I'm sure everybody will want to chime in with their congratulations. Well, congratulations to our dear friend and co-host Rachel Bovar on the birth of her first child. She will be sorely missed, and we are going to try our best to fill in in her absence while, of course, she is home with the newborn. But in any event, welcome back to NatCon Squad. This is, of course, where common sense and common good meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. So welcome back, everyone. We're going to be without our dear friend and co-host, Rachel, for a little while, as previously mentioned, but hope you stay with us. And today we're going to uh, kick off the intermittent uh, Rachel interregnum, if you will, I guess, with a, a diverse array of topics. So we're going to get started with Ben talking about how the January 6th committee has just become a death deathly serious sham with Peter Navarro getting into handcuffs and leg irons, just crazy stuff over there. Then we're going to kick it over to Will to kind of break down how the Washington Post newsroom is canceling itself over a fairly innocuous retweet from Dave Weigel. Um, just each story this week is getting crazier, it seems. Um, and as then we'll talk about the San Francisco District Attorney recall election with noted Hugo Chavez sycophant Chesa Boudin. And I will close us out with uh, tying a bow on a previously discussed story, of course, which is the Ilya Shapiro affair at Georgetown University Law Center. But Ben, it's a crazy week, but why don't we throw it over to you to kick us started? Thanks, Josh. And yeah, we could we could spend a significant amount of time just talking about the Navarro episode alone. And I wrote a piece on that for The Federalist comparing Michael Sussman being acquitted and Peter Navarro uh, being shackled and ambushed by FBI agents at the airport. Uh, also, let's note that the Department of Justice recently added charges in an indictment to several Proud Boy members being prosecuted under the whole January 6th dragnet of seditious conspiracy. So Peter Navarro shackled uh, seditious conspiracy charges from the DOJ right on the eve of these primetime hearings that Democrats uh, continue to bandy about coming this week. And as we found out, these were we already knew these were going to be kabuki Soviet show trial style hearings. Uh, but then we now find out that actually a former ABC News president is going to be the one who is literally producing and stage managing the kabuki this week. And while we understand we've known this was obviously a one sided stacked deck, you know, sort of Sussman jury style committee that exists here of all Trump derangement syndrome adult individuals uh, who obviously loathe and want to destroy their political opposition here. I think that we shouldn't be distracted by the fact that, yes, it is going to be over the top um, you know, stage management here, that this is something that we know is being hyped up by people who were pretty much cheering on the summer riots of 2020, uh, but but con consider January 6th to be on par with the depths of the Civil War and World War II and 9-11. But that re the ridiculousness of it, in my view, should not distract us from how deathly serious it is. And the reason I believe that the J6 committee is so deathly serious is not just because they've obviously pierced the veil and really destroyed the concept of executive privilege or the fact that they're putting out criminal referrals that the DOJ is actually pushing forward with, uh, or the fact that they have broken all the congressional rules, that this may well be an illegitimate committee from the start, not just on the basis of the rules, but because it's supposed to have a legislative purpose. And they've kind of ex post tried to make the case they're going to argue their legislative purposes for it by arguing for a whole raft of legislation as a consequence of it. 
We also know that they want to try to abolish the electoral college on the basis of what they're going to argue here. But all of that stuff, to me, is something of a distraction from the fact that the central animating narrative here is that MAGA equals terrorist. Donald Trump is essentially an Ayatollah here or an emir leading this movement. And these were jihadists that stormed the castle on January 6th and that the rest of us provide aid and comfort to them. And that is really the overarching narrative. But it's not just a crazy narrative because look at the way that the committee is operating. Essentially, they're treating this as if there were networks of funders, activists, and others who all came together in some great terroristic conspiracy, essentially. And the reason that I don't think that that is overstating the case is that if you look at the administration's national strategy for countering domestic terrorism, which I always go back to, it uses January 6th as the catalyzing event to justify this war on counterterror, and of course, casts opposition as terroristic in this country. So there, there is a ridiculous narrative that is at the core of this committee, but the way that it is pursued, everyone and their mother, in, including Trump and everyone in Trump's orbit, to make the case that essentially the conservative movement is terroristic and then actually use the full powers of the, the government in tandem, it would seem, with DOJ here, is, is dark, chilling, disturbing, and I think perfectly, perfectly captures the most nakedly partisan enforcement arm here in the Congress of the broader war on wrong thing that's being executed. So this is a sham, but it's a deathly serious sham is sort of my argument. And even if Americans tune out from it, which I think they will, I don't think they're going to convince anyone here of anything, it's still very significant because this on display, this will perfectly capture not only the contempt that our ruling class has for us, but how dangerous they plan to be with that contempt. So take the committee both literally and seriously would be my argument. I'm curious what your all take is on the eve of these hearings starting this Thursday. Um, go ahead, go ahead, Inez. I'll, I'll jump in because this is least my expertise. So I'll, I'll do the, the 10,000 foot level problem with this. I mean, we, we now live in an incredibly low trust society, right? Um, that's why we can't come to any kind of compromise, for example, over something like red flag laws, where I think I'm opposed to them for this reason, exactly, right? Um, but but I think that a lot of conservatives would be more open to things like that um, if they didn't have the direct uh, experience of the last four years where we've had parents, um, first of all, we've had essentially intelligence surveillance um, that is intended to be used against the enemies of the United States abroad turned inward on Americans on domestic enemies. We're seeing the redefinition of domestic terrorism to include parents going to school board meetings. Um, and, and now we're seeing that, in fact, we, we are, um, in all, for all intents and purposes, arresting political opposition, right? So the, the corruption of the, the justice system um, it cannot be overstated in terms of, of the, the downward slope that that's really going to have uh, in terms in an already low trust society. I mean, it seems like we have to learn the lessons from old American Westerns, right? If there's no rule of law, there's rule of the gun. And there's going to be a massive, massive consequence to the justice system being politicized. And if people no longer trust that, that these kinds of arrests and prosecutions are being done with without regard to political persuasion or domestic political opinion. Um, you know that that's not just a, a red line in terms of red versus blue or um, all of our disagreements in terms of, of politics. That's literally the line between the rule of law and living in a republic with the rule of law and living in one that doesn't have it. 
Um, and so there, I, I agree with you, Ben, there's, there's no way to overstate how bad this will be for an already low trust society. And basically people aren't gonna trust the justice system. And when the people can't trust the justice system, the rule of law dies. Yeah, I think, you know, there's this interesting, you know, two basic facets of this. One is the, the idea that the Democrats are trying to use this to distract from their domestic political failings, right? You, you know, they either reason an article in New York Times, it's like, we're trying to recast things in advance of the 2022 election. Yes, obviously, you can't talk about massive inflation. And you certainly can't talk about a baby formula shortage created by your own FDA. Uh, which, you know, as someone who has a newborn, this is actually quite familiar to me. It is really quite annoying to like literally not be able to get the formula you've been using and have, we've now switched at least three times, I think, between different formulas uh, in order to kind of keep just trying to get something in uh, for our baby. And, you know, we supposedly live in a first world country. Uh, and yet they think that the American public will care about an 18 month old riot. They won't. This isn't, this isn't the impeachment hearings where there was some direct consequence like it was extremely consequential what happened. And so a lot of people were tuning in. No, this is just, they're, they're literally trying to make a movie out of something that happened 18 months ago that's over and done with. Trump is not president, you guys are. And so, you know, ultimately the way to understand this is sort of a way to kind of just distract and deflect responsibility from the fact that you guys have been running the government for 18 months and things have gone completely haywire. That said, uh, the way they are using their authority as Ben has described is chilling. Um, there was no need to use these shackles on uh, Peter Navarro, but it's not the first time. It seems like any sort of Trumpian Republican operative who gets caught up by, in one of these things gets like the full weight of the FBI thrown down on them. Remember Roger Stone getting just a, you know, a SWAT raid uh, for a false statement to Congress charge. Um, I mean, they, they, they do this. They just don't care, right? They, they, and they sort of don't, they don't care about the idea that, well, if we were in power, we might do it to them. Because I think in the end of the day, Republicans probably won't do it to them. And maybe that's something that needs to change. Right. Maybe when we start running investigations into the classified leak, Adam Schiff should be paraded in leg irons through Congress. Like, I don't know what, what will get them to realize that they actually need to treat Republicans with respect be, uh, other than them having their own tactics turned back on them. So, you know, I'm I'm for about some amount of limited retribution on prominent Democrats being humiliated the, using the FBI. And if the FBI agents won't do it, fire them, find the ones who will. Like there just needs to be a wholesale. There needs to be a rebalancing here where the sort of aggressive authoritarian tactics are at least mirrored on some members of the left so that everybody can remember exactly why we don't do this stuff. So I totally agree with Will's proposal of prudential tit for tat. I mean, prudential punishing enemies and rewarding friends within the confines of the rule of law. I think our governor here in Florida is doing a fantastic job of kind of setting the table for what that kind of looks like in practice. But I think one important thing to one important point here to remember, I think Trump world is definitely kind of epicenter for the left's war and their kind of two-tier system of justice in general. And really, obviously, the entire point of this J6 boondoggle is ultimately to try to set Trump up for not being able to run for president again in the first place. That's really, I think, what's actually going on here. But it's not just Trump world. I mean, we've discussed this in the podcast previously, but think about what happened to James O'Keefe, obviously, last fall. I mean, when the feds came in at 6 a.m. or whatever it was, with a 5 a.m. with a battering ram on his front door, he was in handcuffs on the floor of his house in Westchester, Westchester County, New York. I mean, just insane, just truly insane stuff here. But 
the broader point here that Inez made, I think is the kind of biggest takeaway here. When things like this happen, and Ben had a piece on this, Roger Kimball had an excellent column on this, I thought, for American greatness. When things like this happen, where Michael Sussman is let off scot-free in a, in a trial in Washington, D.C., where the jury selection pools like 92 to 95% Democratic voters, where the judge is like a personal friend of Sussman's and Hillary's or whatever the exact connection that Ben teased out in his excellent Newsweek column for me. When things like that ha happen in close juxtaposition to Peter Navarro being literally put into handcuffs, Peter Navarro a pretty high-ranking Trump official, by the way, okay? He was not like a mid-level kind of deep state minion. This was a pretty high-ranking guy who was honestly like probably one of the most responsible people in the entire administration for reorienting U.S.-China policy really in a fundamental way for the first time really since Nixon went to China in, in you know, 50 years ago. So this is, a, this is a big deal. And this broader decline of trust institutions, I, I, I don't see an easy solution to this. I mean, there's no obvious way of kind of fixing that rudder, unfortunately, but it's a recurring theme of this podcast. And, you know, I, I, I guess that we can only kind of discuss the problem in hopes that our side will kind of ultimately wake up to the stakes. And I think obviously the one possible short-term remedy is kind of this tit-for-tat politics that Will's discussing here, but we're running out of time here. So let's move on. We're, Will, we're going to throw it back to you to talk about what's going on over at the Washington Post and this self-cancellation. Uh, cool. Um, yeah. So, uh, if you've been following Twitter or the news lately, there's been two major events at the Washington Post. Uh, the first is the suspension of Washington Post reporter David Weigel for one, a very, very innocuous retweet. Now, he didn't even tweet this. He literally just clicked the retweet button of somebody making a joke. Every quote, every woman is bi. You just have to figure out whether it's bipolar or bisexual, something along those lines, which is, in my view, chuckle worthy, just, you know, totally Twitter banter, like not even anything to remark on. And yet this uh, Washington Post reporter, Felicia Somnez, who, you know, Wagyal had routinely defended in the past, who's had her own issues with the Post, suing them for, um, you know, retro, you know, workplace retribution over a lawsuit she filed, uh, any any number of things. And yet basically she just, she she didn't just go to him, you know, they work at the same outlet. She could conceivably just talk to him privately, but no, instead she lit, lit him up on Twitter and tagged her, tagged his bosses, said, how do, how do we tolerate this? And the end result is Weigel is suspended without pay for a month over an innocuous retweet that he literally unretweeted and then apologized for. Um, and then, you know, this is happening at the same time that Taylor Lorenz, our, our you know, the wonderful journalist Taylor Lorenz had a, a massive ethical problem with her story to the point that there was, she wrote a story on um, people on YouTubers who were covering the Johnny Depp trial and lied about contacting them before she published a story, basic journalistic ethics, and also got numerous facts wrong about like how much money that she claimed they were making like 80 grand a month off of YouTube, which they weren't. It was just a social blade number. They need, she didn't even bother to ask them. Um, it was a total disaster. And uh, yeah, middle-aged journalist, Taylor Lorenz, elderly journalist, Taylor Lorenz, um, the, but like, it's a classic example of what does the Washington Post care about, right? If you're, if you're running, I mean, I mean, I ran, I was running human events for a while, no longer, but uh, when I was there, like I didn't, I wouldn't have cared at all about a random retweet. I certainly would have cared about one of my authors lying um, and getting facts wrong in a story that was, that would be infuriating because I figure that that's what, that's our reputation. Our reputation is we get things right. But apparently in the Washington Post world, it is far more important to punish Dave Weigel for literally a single click, not even something he typed or wrote a single click than it is to publish Taylor Lorenz for outright lying and ethics of the story. And so it's just, 
Um, I mean, the whole story about Dave Weigel, like, I don't really feel that sorry for the guy. He's another one of the, he's like Will Wilkinson, one of these people who uh, was an ardent promoter of cancel culture until it caught up to him. Um, and so like, we shouldn't, you know, I, I don't really feel sorry for the guy, you know, you, you, you know, <laughs> like it's ultimately, uh, I for, I, there's, there's a million expressions to justify it and I can't think of any of it. Uh, but that said, like, it's just, it's more of an indication of how, just how far the Washington Post has fallen and how unserious of an organization it is. And I don't know, it, I, get, I think there's just got to be an opportunity somehow for the right to actually come up with a serious news organization response. Uh, if, if the Washington Post is like self-immolating in this petty gossip drama while allowing massive ethical violations to go unanswered and, and on, you know, no, without any, you know, career consequences for Lorenz, uh, there's got to be some opportunity for us. Anyway, that's, that's, I'll kick it around to you guys. Well, I, I mean, on a, look, on a, I, on a selfish note, a very self-promotion note, this is partially the void that we're trying to fill in Newsweek opinion, right? right. It's, like, it's, like, it's like a mainstream media brand that is not crazy obsessed with cancel culture and the woke mob committed to airing like a legitimate diversity of viewpoints whose quote-unquote conservative columnists are not Jen Rupin style, actually anti-conservative in practice. <laughs> um, um, yeah. But I, the interesting thing for the Washington Post in particular is I, I, I'm, I've been very intrigued by Jeff Bezos's recent Twitter activity. I don't know exactly what's going on there, but he seems to be trying to position himself to maybe kind of curry favor with a Republican Congress. I mean, the best I can tell, I mean, maybe he kind of sees... Uh, you, you know, the uh, he, he must see obviously right in front of him the extent to which Republicans and conservatives hate this democracy dies in darkness publication that he has purchased. So I, I his tweet's been very interesting. I'm not entirely sure how to reconcile that with what we're discussing here. This this intensive woke culture that is generating the headlines there. Taylor relent Taylor Lorenz. Uh, how I, I don't remember how long she's been at at the Washington Post, but. Uh, she's just she's just a walking disaster. I mean, like literally every month, it seems like it is just one like garbage story after another there. So I think if Jeff Bezos is even like remotely serious about trying to reposition his shiny new acquisition as something that is not like unilaterally and completely in the tank for left-wing wokeism, I have to think that firing Taylor Lorenz would be a very fine place to start. I'm not gonna say I'm particularly optimistic about that there. Um, but one other thing that I have to say, I, I, I saw this just hilarious tweet um, this morning about, about, um, about what's going on there. So the tweet reads, this is like a very clever Anon who's tweeting this. So he tweets, quote, Dave Weigel tweeted a joke about how women are crazy and boy, did those gals prove, prove him wrong. And I, I just, I just wanted, I just wanted to share that because uh, it's a little anti-PC, and perhaps the cancel culture folks will come out for me for even reading that tweet in this podcast. But hopefully, Inez, you don't take offense to it because I thought it was a pretty funny tweet. Yeah, I thought this whole episode was extremely funny. I mean, the, some of the weighty things that we're always talking about here, like uh, you know, those are depressing. This is very entertaining for me. Um, I, it's kind of like what Kissinger said about Iran and Iraq. I'm just sorry that there can be only one loser, right? Um, in in yeah. these in these wars. I do think there are some relatively serious points to be pulled out of, out of this. One is the obvious, um, you know, we've seen this play out in newsrooms over and over again. It's the same uh, sort of dynamic that's playing out in big tech companies, same dynamic that's, that's playing out in, you know, Fortune 500 companies and virtually every organization. And that is that every year we have a new rank of cultural revolutionaries who are graduating into these organizations from the bottom. And so you have even people who are on the left uh, but who are, let's say, elder millennial into Gen X, um, let alone boomers, they're finding they cannot deal with 
the the sort of um, organizational push uh, coming up from their younger employees who are much more woke, much more left wing, uh, and much more intolerant of, say, a, a stray retweet, right? Um, so this is kind of the story of a lot of different organizations, and, and I know that you all know that, but uh, that's what makes it somewhat important. Two other things. One, there's an element of, of toxic femininity here, um, which we don't discuss, which is to say that there are positive and negative feminine traits, just as much as there are positive and negative masculine traits. You know, masculinity can be uh, positive and protecting the weak, for example, through strength. It can also have that strength and physical sort of aggression channeled in inappropriate ways. I think this is an example of, of sort of the, the female impulse to sensitivity being channeled in a totally inappropriate way. But unlike, say, in, in uh, the case of, of a guy, you know, sort of uh, getting into fights, which we all agree is sort of a bad thing, right? Um, uh, culture tells tells men, oh, you shouldn't you shouldn't be channeling your aggression this way. Our culture tells women, no, you're absolutely righteous. You know, uh, you should continue to to be oversensitive. All of your feelings are valid, so on. So I think that really is creating a psychological um, sort of incentive to to do things like this. And then finally, um, just really briefly, this the other story of this is that competency fails in an ideological environment, right? And, and that's the story of seemingly everything in this country right now. Uh, but but at the end of the day, if you select for ideology um, and and you focus on sort of ideological policing, the, the other there is an opportunity cost, and the opportunity cost is competency, right? So if if you have ideological commitments to keep Taylor Lorenz, you're going to eventually have the kind of competency problems where she lies to you and and doesn't um, you know actually ask sources for quotes when she tells you that she has right Th those are basic competency issues and maybe in journalism because nobody uh you know sort of center to write takes law post seriously anymore that's less of a problem but when it comes to for example you know government agencies if you're selecting for ideology you're not selecting for competence and that ultimately it's a slow process but ultimately it does uh, show up and, and i think we're starting to start really starting to see the wages of selecting only for ideology in the wages of incompetency in basically every institution now. Well, and, and to that point, uh, you know, as for Josh's comments about uh, Lorenz, you know, maybe being fired at some points, I think I would bet on the opposite happening. I would bet that she will continue to fail upward and be promoted. And I think that's a reflection of kind of Will's framing of here you have a trivial joke on Twitter, which may ruin a person's career, but then you have journalistic ethics breaches that are sacrosanct ethical issues here and the most basic and fundamental ones can be broken without consequence so like the really Im not important dumb things matter are deathly serious here but then when it comes to the actually important things uh they don't even matter and in fact the person's career may advance um so i think that is a reflection of the unseriousness of a ruling class, the fundamental unseriousness, or at least that it is serious about the least serious things. But then when it comes to what actually matters, they don't care at all. And you see this, of course, reflected in pretty much every institution in terms of the failing upward on the merit. But that comes down to the question of what are you judging on? Are you judging on adherence to the cause and devotion to the cause? Or are you judging on actually doing a good job as we would traditionally define it? And let's also note when it comes to the Washington Post on a much more significant and consequential matter when it comes to ethics, something we've documented at Real Clear Investigations uh, ad nauseum, 
The Post won Pulitzers for Russiagate reporting, much of which has been debunked. And they've never said sorry. There's no real contrition for it. Yeah, a couple editors' notes and pulling down of a couple columns. But you're talking about one of the greatest frauds in history that they were central actors in. And, and despite the fact that, you know, for whatever our misgivings on Durham, like we do know how much the media colluded in these processes. That's the ultimate journalistic breach and undermining our democracy, our republic, really, uh, and clouding it in their darkness. So there are even far graver journalistic ethics breaches here uh, that there, no price is paid for, and the media continues to go on. So uh, I think you know the Washington Post has more to answer for than just Taylor or ends. But on the broadest point here, uh, I think we have to let the Mensheviks and Bolsheviks, let nature run its course and, and let them kind of kill each other within these institutions. But I think that the, the younger woke inmates are going to continue to run all of these asylums going forward. So speaking of woke people running the asylum, that's actually a perfect transition to Inez talking about what's happening in San Francisco with Chesa Boudin right now. Yeah, so there is this recall election and we're having this discussion um, on, on Tuesday as this recall election is going on. So we don't know what the outcome is yet, whether or not the DA in San Francisco will actually be recalled. Um, but I think it's fair to say that even if he survives, which right now polls are basically 50-50 and they're not looking good for him, uh, but even if he survives, the fact that it's so close, even in San Francisco and in, in the flagship progressive city of the United States, I think it, it shows um, how incredibly fed up people are with the rise in crime because, um, I mean, and San Francisco used to be an incredibly safe city. I, I grew up uh, just south of there. I spent a lot of my, my sort of childhood and teenage years wandering around. It was in fact 20 years possible, um, 20 years ago to, to wander around in the Tenderloin as a 14 year old girl. And, and that was actually a fairly safe activity. Um, but even as much as five years ago, it was, it was a reasonable activity. And it really shows that there are in the end of the day consequences to this, once again, this, this abandonment of the rule of law, right? We talked about it with regard to political prosecutions. Now we have to talk about it with regard to political uh, unprosecutions failing to prosecute politically, um, which is really what has happened in San Francisco. It's what the DA in, in Manhattan, Alvin Bragg uh, is, is trying to do in New York. Um, one of the big differences is just that in, in New York, the NYPD is still like a very serious force in the city and that there are other jurisdictions that can kind of prosecute around the DA in Manhattan. So it, there's not as immediate an impact in New York, but, um, you know, it, it just goes to show how frustrated people are with these quality of life issues. I think it's, it's going to be a huge part of uh, the tsunami that's coming for Democrats in, in November. And, and just finally, two points. One, um, there was this New York Magazine piece uh, that tried to blame this on Republicans, talking about this DA election, uh, tried to blame this somehow on Republicans, the premise of which seems to be that you cannot be both wealthy and left wing. Um, which, which is just a, really uh, an incredible deflection to uh, the, the, the problems of, of um, again, of quality of life, of crime. Um, homicide is up in San Francisco. Property crime is up. Serious assault is up. Everything that, um, you know, that makes it possible for somebody to live and walk down the street and, and go to their local bodega and, and, and actually enjoy life in the city um, is, is, is massively hampered by this failure and refusal uh, to do for the DAs to do their jobs, the police to actually um, to allow the police to do their jobs in terms of arresting uh, criminals. Um, and so finally, great cities matter. I, I, I know this is an unpopular point for the right. Um, I, I 
I think the right is is sort of anti-urban um, and always and there's something natural in that. It has kind of always been part of not only American politics, but um, it, politics in, in many, many countries have this sort of country party, city party dynamic. Um, but having flagship cities in the United States matters. I mean, it's, it, you know, New York City is actually, like it or not, is what a lot of people around the world associate with, with the United States of America. Um, we have millions and millions and millions of people who, for example, do not support uh, the kind of crazy policies that are happening in the city. And it will not be good for America if we return to the 1970s where the, most of our great cities go into a death spiral because everybody who can gets out. Uh, that, that won't be good for the country, even, uh, even for folks who are in suburban or rural areas. It, it, it really does matter. So it really does matter. I, I obviously agree with that. And I, I, we'll, we'll see what happens in the recall election. Obviously, we are recording this on a Tuesday, but whether it's Boudin in San Francisco, whether it's uh, Gascon in Los Angeles, whether it's Alvin Bragg in New York, big democratic cities far too often seem to have these so-called anti-prosecution prosecutors, these district attorneys who are fundamentally committed to not enforcing the rule of law. And if you think that that is an oxymoronic or like a paradoxical platform for a purported law enforcement officer to run on, you would not be wrong for thinking so. It is a, it is a truly crazy thing. Andy McCarthy, who's on Fox all the time, he's normally a national review, but he had this great essay for Commentary Magazine a couple of years ago, I think it was entitled the, the Progressive Prosecutor Project, where he kind of did a deep dive, kind of showing kind of the way that this has really run through the ranks. And George Soros is definitely one of the major funders behind this kind of national wave to elect DAs who fundamentally are not committed to enforcing the rule of law. The because I guess three of the four of us on here are technically lawyers. So like the legal term that like you sometimes hear when people on the left defend what's happening in these cities is prosecutorial discretion. Now, prosecutorial discretion is kind of an old concept. It's not a particularly difficult concept to grasp. Prosecutors' offices obviously have limited resources. You can't necessarily choose to prosecute or kind of bring to fruition every single crime that's committed. The problem is that that is totally different than basically igno categorically ignoring a literal category of crimes and just choosing not to enforce it. When it's done on like an ad hoc case by case basis, this actually it was very interesting. A lot of this was kind of discussed in the context of the DAPA amnesty during the Obama administration, which was which was the 2014 successor to DACA. My good friend Josh Blackman, professor in Houston, a law professor in Houston, Texas, kind of did a lot of the constitutional law analysis here. Anyway, the point is, when you are a DA, you cannot just say, "Oh, here's a class of crime." that I'm just going to ignore. So for example, in New York City, around the, around the time of the beginning of COVID, I don't, whoever the predecessor to Alvin Bragg was, the DA back then, basically said that he was not going to enforce petty larceny unless it was like $150 or more. So what that means in practice is like a CVS or a Walgreens, for example, if you go in there, you can basically just steal $149 in merchandise and you, and like, you know you're not going to be prosecuted. Um, I mean, what kind of climate is that going to set up there? But you know, the final point that I'll make here is, I, I, I think Ines's point is also well taken that it, that it is irresponsible for conservatives and people on the right in general to kind of just give up on the idea of cities. This is a kind of a point that I've heard a lot of people make for years, and I think it's right. It's a difficult thing, but you know, especially as we kind of look towards this November's polling, and we see in a lot of cities that the Latino populations are kind of increasingly kind of trending towards the right uh, side of the aisle. It is not inconceivable that some sort of kind of urban-centric conservatism can form 
not to say obviously that we will ever be a majority party in a lot of big cities here, but you know, look again, I, I live in Miami, Florida. Our mayor here, Francis Suarez, is 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 a Republican. He's a very moderate Republican, but he's a Republican nonetheless. So, uh, you know, homeless here, crime, it's it's just not an, the issue that frankly that it is in cities like San Francisco and Los Angeles. So there is there is another way to do this. Yeah, and I mean, I think you're finding out that even California progressives can get reactionary sometimes, right? Like this is not, there's, there's a big backlash against Boudin and, you know, the other, these are people who all voted for Democrat politicians and at the state level at the federal level, but they're about to throw out a woke prosecutor. Um, my dad always joked that there's nobody more reactionary than a, than a progressive whose housing values are threatened. And that's kind of what's going on here, right? Like the, the, you know, uh Oh, like there's crime on my block, better get her, better get rid of this guy. Um, it's really incredible that this guy actually managed to win office in the first place. Uh, shows the pernicious effect of George Soros's open society on our politics more generally, drowning these small DA races and huge amounts of money and electing people who are explicitly out there to not enforce the law. It's, ter it's a terrible thing. Um, he's a piece of pernicious influence on our on our you know political life as a country. Uh, and it, it, it's ruining our cities. And as Inez says, like, I, I feel terrible. I mean, I've lived, I lived in downtown Los Angeles, lived in Washington, DC. And, you know, there's a big difference between a place where you feel safe to walk down the street and what it means for your general quality of life and a place where it's just not safe to walk down the street. And that's not only within, you know, as a cities as a general matter, but within specific neighborhoods in those cities. Um, DC for a long time was actually doing very good at sort of expanding the circle of safety in, in these cities. It became more and more walkable, but past after COVID, that's basically gone and the city does not feel nearly as safe as it did. Um, and then San Francisco and Los Angeles are throwing away what were actually fairly safe cities. And Los Angeles has had a problem with Skid Row for years. San Francisco has just you know, decided to be completely lunatic and stop enforcing their laws. Um, and it would be, it would generally be a good thing for the country to see, you know, people enforcing laws again. But I'm, all, I'm also, you know, there's there's a part of me that's like people are getting what they voted for like this is like good and hard and hope i mean i'll feel a lot i'll i'll have a lot more sympathy for for san francisco and los angeles if they actually get rid of these progressive prosecutors if they don't it's like this is this is literally the people of the city telling normal hardworking people who like law enforcement to move that's what it is like if you're if you're a normal person who wants security and your safety and property and san francisco decides that they continue to want Boudin as the district attorney uh you should you should leave really yeah, I mean, I guess I think the heartening thing here is that for normal people, rather than the ruling class that never really has to live with the consequences of its decisions, there is something of self-correcting mechanism here. People are not ultimately going to support policies that lead to them getting jumped or shot at on their streets um, or subjecting their kids to essentially anarchy and chaos on the streets. So that's a positive thing, um, you know, and to the extent there's there numerous recalls that would be a, a boon for the country i think it's also this is just a, a personal anecdote level um we fled new york city for a number of reasons uh, a year and a half or so ago um and even in new jersey suburbs you know 40 minutes outside the city but close to other urban areas there are spillover effects to these policies even in those suburbs so Literally, and I know that this is pretty much a national phenomenon, there have been carjackings at an increasing rate and oftentimes in brazen ways. In my neighborhood, there's a, there's a police sign out which says, 
lock your car doors, do not leave your keys in your cars. And this is like a no crime suburb, not right outside New York or right outside an urban area, but pretty close to them. So there's spillover effects here, which means that there are knock on effects to these policies. And in New Jersey, and I bet it's the same in a lot of other states, there is a policy that's been implemented that says that cops really have a very high bar to justify chasing suspected criminal vehicles from one town to another because of the public safety risks. But of course, that protects the criminals when they are jacking cars and the like. Um, and this raft of insane policies does exist, I think, across the country. The fact that there's a huge backlash is a great thing. Uh, but ultimately, I think there is a real question of what will happen to these cities. It, or is the chasm between the haves and the have-nots in cities going to increasingly grow where you're going to have, you know, on Park Avenue, basically every vehicle, every a luxury high rise with you know, armed guards outside of it and people traveling in armored vehicles. Like, is that the dystopic world that we're going to end up in? And then also, what is going to be the consequence to the flood, the rush of people from blue states and particularly bright blue cities to red ones? Is that going to ultimately corrupt those states? Are the people going to bring their bad policies with them? All things that will be interesting, trends that will be interesting to play out. But it's a, it's a, it's a remarkably... Uh, propitious time, I think, for anyone who has a common sense agenda about peace and prosperity on the streets for people. Okay, so uh, let's transition. I, I think all four of our segments today are effectively under the broader auspices of kind of the woke leftists uh, uh, just overstepping and overreaching here. So we're going to conclude on that as well. So we want to kind of come back to a story that we discussed on this podcast previously, which is the trials and tribulations of a good personal friend of mine, Ilya Shapiro, over at Georgetown University Law Center. So to kind of remind the listeners and viewers who may have forgotten about this, so Ilya was hired away from Cato Institute, where he served for a long time, probably 15 years or so. He was going to start as the executive director at Georgetown University Law Center's Center for the Constitution, where he was going to work closely with uh, Professor Randy Barnett, who was kind of a leading libertarian legal theorist. He was due to start there on February 1st, but... A few days beforehand, around the time that President Biden was about to uh, ultimately announce the nomination of Bataji Brown Jackson, around the time that he doubled down on his commitment to nominate specifically a black woman for the next Supreme Court justice, which, by the way, is roughly 2% of the national legal pool, uh, Ilya tweeted that he was not happy about this, that he opposed basically the idea that the president was announcing that he was limiting his Supreme Court nominee search to, uh, to to this, and he suggested that the better nominee would be Sri Srinivasan, who's kind of a, a highly touted progressive jurist on the D.C. circuit. Um, and, and he phrased his tweet in perhaps a less than ideal manner. It was up for, le- I think, less than an hour before he deleted it. In any event, uh, you know, the wokesters do what they do. People like Mark Joseph Stern, Ian Milheiser kind of sick the, the entirety of kind of the left-wing Twitter apparatus vicious mob onto him. I, the exact way he phrased it, what, the, the way that Ilya phrased it was, he said that Sri Srinivasan would be better than a, quote, lesser black woman. So uh, you really have to be a bad faith actor here, I think, to kind of look at what he said and think that, that, that this man did anything wrong whatsoever. Frankly, according to reputable polling, ABC News had a poll, I think it was like 76% of Americans, something like that, agreed with the point that he was making, that, that Joe Biden should not limit his search for the next nominee to specifically a black woman. So the dean of the law school, Bill Trainer, kind of sends out a memo back in early February, says how terrible this is. Ilya is going to be on paid administrative leave. They have this four-month sham investigation that ultimately concluded last month where they let him off on a jurisdictional technicality. After four months, they noted that the tweet in question was sent before he was actually a Georgetown employee. 
So this was the specific, it was the Office of Institutional Diversity, Equity, and Affirmative Action, which I, I, I just can't help but smile as I read it because it is just so crazy and that we have um, diversity crash kind of offices on universities that are named this level of kind of Orwellian nature at this point. So he was let off on a jurisdictional technicality. He celebrated that um, in a Wall Street Journal op-ed, but then earlier this week, in a separate Wall Street Journal op-ed, he announced that he was actually resigning from Georgetown Law School, and he has kind of a lengthy uh, letter to the dean of the law school, Dean Trainer, that he has tweeted out and made public explaining why he is doing so. It's a very well-written letter. I would encourage the listeners and viewers to check it out for themselves. He cites four reasons for doing so. Um, the kind of the overall thrust, the overall thrust of the letter and the point he is making is that due to the dean's action, due to Dean Trainer's actions and the way that he is just completely mollycoddled the woke mob, that he has completely mollycoddled all the left-wing activist students there and repeatedly condemned his allegedly quote-unquote offensive behavior, his demeaning comments and things like that. What Ilya says is that the dean has basically just set him up to be ultimately canceled when there is not a so-called jurisdictional technicality, when he actually is an employee, and the next time that he just offends progressive orthodoxy, whether it's you know whether he's teaching Roe versus Wade in 14th Amendment constitutional law, whether he's discussing the impending affirmative action lawsuits at Harvard University, North Carolina, that will be argued next Supreme Court term, no matter what it is. He basically says, and I think he's accurate to say this, I think he is right, that the dean has set him up for failure, so he'd rather go out on his own terms. Just one other final point that I'll make before throwing it up in here. I think one interesting part of Ilya's letter, he compares the fairly anodyne tweet that he had with other tweets that law professors have had at, at Georgetown who were not canceled, who did not have the sham investigation, but by which the dean of the law school just appealed to Georgetown's free speech protection policy for protection. So here's in 2018, Professor Carol Christine Fair, this is during uh, Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation process. Pr Professor Fair tweets, quote, Look at this chorus of entitled white men justifying a serial rapist's arrogated entitlement. All of them deserve miserable deaths while feminists laugh as they take their last gasps. Bonus, we castrate their corpses and feed them to swine? Yes. Um, there were a few other examples, but that tweet apparently was protected under Georgetown's free speech protection policy. Um, so, uh, look, uh, God willing, Ilya will land on his own two feet, um, but uh, this is a, just another kind of sordid affair. It's yet the latest example of the woke mob, and I think as if we needed another example that the universities are fundamentally just not salvageable and we need to burn the entire thing to the ground, I think this just kind of drives that point home yet again, but I'll, I'll, I'll open it up at, at that point. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll start since this is my alma mater. <laughs> um, I can't, I am so like, I, I'm really incredibly disappointed in all these people, Dean Trainer, uh, Mitch Balin, like the way that the administration of Georgetown Law handled this was a complete joke. Uh, ensures that, you know, if, if I was even remotely inclined to ever donate to my, my alma mater, uh, I certainly would not now. The, the, their treatment of, of Ilya Shapiro was embarrassing. I think Ilya made the right decision. It's pretty abundantly clear that uh, as he put it, they had created a hostile work environment for him by essentially saying the moment somebody else takes offense to anything you say, we're going to have a whole investigation of you. He shouldn't have to work under these circumstances. Um, you know, I, I, I remember, I think I had an argument with Randy Barnett over this, who I, I never took a class with, but, you know, he's a Georgetown law professor. And, you know, I, I was one of the people who like, you know, I, I did very well at Georgetown and, and conceivably like could have thought about law professor as a future career. But the moment I even thought about it, I'm like, no, I'm a Republican conservative. That's not, I didn't even see it as a live option to consider going into legal academia, even though I, I didn't enjoy working in big law. 
And, you know, he argued, it's like, no, you can find a place here, blah, blah, blah. Well, it's like, actually, no, these, the, you are, this is exactly the point of why conservatives generally should not be looking to work in legal academia. It's a hornet's, it's a viper's nest of people who hate you you're, and colleagues who are trying to get you fired and have your life ruined all the time there. And, you know, I think one of the things that connects all of this, you know, the Washington Post, like, look at how, what you have to go through if you're employed there, what you have to go through if you're employed at Georgetown Law. We are so much freer, even if we're not like as well compensated or in like as prestigious positions, we're so much freer working in, in the conservative ecosystem because you, you can actually say what you think and not worry about like losing your job and losing your livelihood. You don't have to worry about leftist censors ruining your life. Like whatever, what, for all of the people who work at places like Claremont or IWF, like there's no progressive who's gonna come in and be like, I'm offended by what she said or he said and, and get you fired. And I think like, you know, we, we all need to be finding ways to work and work and build our own institutions in that regard so that we could all, more and more people can have a livelihood that is free from these absolutely tyrannical woke censors. Yeah, I think that's really our last point. Um, and, and it was alluding to something that Josh said as well. Uh, there is no beachhead to be had in higher ed, right? So, um, you know, we're all talking all the time about, you know, at what point do we, can we reform certain institutions? Do we need to completely raise them to the ground and build new ones? I, I think those are largely prudential questions and they'll be different whether you're talking about, you know, woke capital or the universities. But in my, in my opinion, the universities are completely unsalvageable. We should be using every single lever. And there are many actually, uh, it's purely a matter of, of um, Republican cowardice. There are many, many levers, unlike in some ways in the K-12 space, there are so many levers, policy levers to push to make the universities feel the pain. And we should be doing that on the state level and on the federal level. Universities are 99.9% .9 of universities are basically wholly dependent on student loan money from the feds. Um, we should be put attaching riders to that money. We should be drawing that money down. They, they have not um, demonstrated even the most basic promises uh, to the American people that would make them uh, you know, just candidates for this massive largesse that we are constantly giving them as taxpayers well beyond any other sort of route to success. And, and finally, don't forget that these students that are, you know, the dean here is bending to, Ilya absolutely made the right call. These students the dean is bending to are going to be staffing the FBI, the DOJ, every major law firm, right? Don't forget about that dynamic. These are the future uh, Felicia and, and Taylor Lorenz's, right, in, in the law. Um, and that that is a massive problem, perhaps a bigger problem than it is even in journalism and media because it, the law is such a highly uh, credentialed profession. It's much, much harder to, to build new pipelines that are like elite credentialed enough um, in, into the law, but that's something that needs to happen. And finally, um, I would just I would just say that one of the upsides um, within the law, or one of the, the positive things, is that we do have a federal judiciary that is is much more balanced, largely because of the Trump administration, right? Um, those those Republican appointed judges, if they have, and this is not a political thing, if they have any commitment to the First Amendment, to the rule of law. They need to start looking at some of these things when they are hiring for clerkships. Um, we need we need uh, like a large part of the elite prestige of uh, places like Georgetown is the fact that they can point to all of the Supreme Court clerks that have, Supreme Court clerks, for example, that have come out of, of um, you know Georgetown, Yale, Harvard. Right, um, that is one elite lever that actually there are plenty of sane people who are still in control of. And once again. We need to push those levers to the extent that they're available to us because every solution from here on out 
gets worse and more radical. I'll, I'll be really brief. First of all, I have immense respect for Ilya for being reinstated and then ultimately leaving. That takes a lot of character and, and frankly, balls, knowing the obligations that he has with a family and a career and more uh, at stake here. So I respect him for that on a personal level. And then to the broader point, there's a question of, again, what do you do when your every institution is corrupted and the woke inmates are running every one of these asylums? And there is, I think, an open question that ought to be answered of, do we try to use the levers of power that we have to influence all of these purportedly prestigious and elite institutions, clearly the major credentialist institutions? Uh, do we try to infiltrate them and ultimately take them over? Or do we have to build a parallel world and uh, try to destroy them through competition ultimately and replace them with a better elite? Open question, something that we have to answer because their march through the institutions has won over the last century, but the sun rises. You have to figure out what you do the day after. And that's where we are right now. All right, so let's transition to parting shots here. Anyone want to get us started? I know we discussed this uh, recently on this show, but um, the Title IX regulations that are, are going to drop, um, those it seems increasingly likely those are going to come out uh, in, in, in the next couple of weeks, probably on the anniversary of Title IX on the 23rd. Um, so just to remind everybody, that is literally the redefinition of sex uh, in, in civil rights law, um, including gender identity into uh, the, the, the word sex in anti-discrimination statutes, right? Um, it's also has massive uh, consequences for both due process and free speech. Those are, are things that the Trump administration actually promulgated regulations to protect. And those regulations are very much just in line with what the Supreme Court has said uh, about what is and isn't protected speech. Um, and also what due process rights anyone accused um, has in, in, in the American justice system. So these are regs that literally um, are, are probably is probably uh, the, the largest and most sweeping changes to our law that have, has ever been made by unelected bureaucrats. I mean, that's arguable. Maybe there's a few other candidates, but I, I, I think that this is probably the biggest change made by unelected bureaucrats. Um, and it's going to have massive implications for every educational uh, institution in the country that takes a dime of federal money, which is virtually all of K-12, virtually all of higher ed, um, so, so these are massive, massive regulatory changes and, and they're coming. So I guess the, I, I think the worst part about that, just to pick up on that, is not necessarily that they're doing it by executive fiat, which is obviously very bad. And I think you're probably right. I mean, this is one of the most, you know, civilization changing things that's ever been done by executive fiat. I think the DACA and DAPA amnesties from Obama are probably pretty far up the list as well. I mean, kind of changing the citizen pool, obviously, for, by executive action is pretty tyrannical, if, if nothing else. But I think one of the worst parts about what's happening here is the threat of, of pulling funding, right? And it kind of just, I think, gives the lie to the idea, to the extent that people on our side of the aisle, our side of the fight, have not woken up to it already, that the left is the, the modern left is the furthest thing from values neutral at this point. They are the furthest thing from morally agnostic or morally relativistic. I think going back to kind of like the old kind of old school, like Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, moral majority days of the 70s and 80s, it was probably pretty typical, I think, for conservative culture warriors to accuse the left of being moral relativists, right? 
they are literally the opposite of that. They are the complete opposite of that in the year 2022. They are not a, they are not amoral in the least. They are profoundly immoral, but they are not amoral. And the fact that they are kind of tying taxpayer dollars for you know poor kids and school lunches and in inner cities to accepting a radical definition of gender ideology that would permit biological men to go into women's bathrooms. They know exactly what it is that they stand for, and they know exactly how to use the levers of the state to effectuate that kind of change. I mean, it's it's fairly Orwellian change on the substance, but they, they know how to use the levers of the state to use statecraft to implement that change on a sweeping, sweeping scale. The question remains, of course, whether folks on our side are going to wake up and kind of assert their own vision, be willing to use a similar array of tools that the left uses to impose their own dystopian vision. Yeah, I have a parting, random parting shot. This is something that I thought about when we were talking about and the Washington Post again. It's perhaps Jeff Bezos actually should, we, we should actually be rooting for Jeff Bezos to take more of a firm hand over the Washington Post operations as a general matter. Uh, you know, you look at what Elon has, I think a lot of the billionaires, even if they're, you know, Silicon Valley types, um, some of them are really kind of, I think, secret. A lot of them are moving to the right. I think they don't like the way, a lot of them don't really like wokeism the guys who are running these companies. And so I wouldn't be surprised that if Jeff Bezos decided, hey, you know, this has all been good and fun letting the Washington Post have editorial independence for me. But I think those days are over. If you guys can't punish somebody like Taylor Lorenz, then clearly, like, I need to step in here. And, you know, what would the Washington Post look like if Jeff Bezos was, like, actively running it in the way he saw fit, right? That would, I think, I think it would look a lot better for the right than it does now. Um, it wouldn't be great. Obviously, Jeff's priorities don't align with all of ours. But, um, you know, it would... I think it would be better. And I, I mean, you know, it kind of connects to a broader theme that there's, you know, there, there are no like, you know, it's hard, maybe it's hard to compete with all these institutions, you know, the, but, and we can't get a beachhead, but maybe billionaire takeovers are the answer. If we can get some friendly billionaires on our side, I don't know. That, that was the, that was the thought that occurred to me. And I, I wonder if we could, you know, maybe another time explore it a little more. Um, I'll also come from a completely random um, and uh, sort of, inexplicable direction here, um, but just because it's a, a prominent news story of late, and it's kind of remarkable to me that it is a prominent news story. Uh, I'm a baseball fanatic. Baseball, like every other American institution, has been corrupted by politics to the nth degree. Uh, we saw, for example, recently, San Francisco Giants manager not standing for the national anthem after what transpired in Uvalde. Uh, probably, I assume the San Francisco Giants fans probably agree with him. Uh, in that measure that he took. Uh, but several players on the Tampa Bay Rays uh, came under fire for essentially rejecting the regime of gay pride that has been imposed on Major League Baseball teams or the Major League Baseball teams have accepted uh, across the country this month. And I think it's, first of all, it's a remarkable commentary that a small majority of the country can basically get you know, an entire institution. And obviously we saw pretty much every single major company, you know, change their logos to the pride logos, except when it comes to their social media accounts in places like the Middle East or China, of course, which proves the, you know, the disingenuousness of the effort. But it's a remarkable commentary in America that first of all, now something like Major League Baseball could completely subject itself to a pride regime this month. And then second of all, that it would be, it would constitute a courageous act for some individuals to say, I don't want to, you know, essentially assent to this regime. But five players in the Tampa Bay Rays have come under fire for essentially rejecting and wearing the hat with the Pride logo. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see who, if anyone speaks up on their behalf. 
again, I think it's more a commentary. Of course, they have their deeply held religious beliefs, moral beliefs, and those should, of course, be respected in our society. I don't really see many people coming out and standing for them, but it's it's a it's a remarkable commentary that in this day and age versus where we've been forever in human history, that this constitutes uh, a courageous act and an act that is a provocative and controversial act that people were even forced into a position of having to be put to a moral test like this, wearing a baseball uniform. Uh, what a commentary on where the country is and how powerful the regime is, um, but also how immoral and to, to Josh's point, these are the sort of the ultimate anti-Puritans. They're, they're puritanical uh, to the nth degree in their beliefs, but in a completely perverted fashion. And uh, so you know, kudos to anyone who stands up against that regime for any reason. Yeah, it's neo-Puritanism, right? I mean, the way I had a conversation over the weekend with a friend and the way that I think of it, and I guess we'll wrap up on this note, there is a moral panic going on in America right now, right? I mean, there's a, I, I, and it's difficult to not tie this obviously to decreasing church attendance rates and kind of just greater kind of secularism and godlessness in general, but there is a moral panic going on right now. And I think kind of just the woke progressive urge, performative displays of virtue signaling, like putting the rainbow flag patch on a major league baseball uniform, I think kind of help fulfills that void. And that's what that moral panic is coming from. But we are out of time for this week. So on behalf of Inez, Will, and Ben, I'm Josh Hammer. We will see you next time.